Hey guys, this is Keir from RugbyStrengthCoach.com. Welcome again to the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be joined again by James Smith. For those of you who checked out his previous episode, you'll know that it was an absolute belter. He's a fantastic coach. Um, For those of you who've not heard of him before, James uh, got his start in high-level strength and conditioning when he worked with Buddy Morris at the University of Pittsburgh Division I college football. He's also been head of performance for Portugal Rugby. Uh, He's worked at the very, very highest level of track and field. He's also, in addition to trying out for the Navy SEALs himself, has worked with a number of Navy SEALs programming for their their preparation and training. Um, And that he's also extended that work to, to various other military domains like police, SWAT, and so on. Now, Originally, as promised in the previous episode of uh, the podcast that we did with James, I was going to pick his brains all about military preparation, talk about his experiences in the military and how it was to, to try out for the SEALs and emailing back and forth, we'd arranged to do that. But then at the very last minute, James threw me a curveball and said that he wanted to talk about a topic which has been on his mind recently. He's done a lot of work on it recently, and that is the death of strength and conditioning. And I have to say that it was a a good call to go with that topic because this turned out to be one of the best hour, 15 minutes that I've spent as a coach in my career. Um, It was probably the most in-depth analysis of sporting performance and preparation for sport as a whole, not even getting into the detail of physical preparation or strength and conditioning. And I personally came away with a ton of different ideas that I'm really, really excited to try and implement in my work as a coach in the coming months. And I'm sure when you listen to it, you'll feel exactly the same. If you would like to check out the, the webinar that James references in his talk, um, you, can, you can check it out on the Rugby Strength Coach community. Um, it's a, over an hour long. It's got a ton of views, a ton of comments and questions from James as well that you'll be able to enjoy. And as part of the trial membership to the community, you'll be able to watch that webinar for just one pound. In fact, you'll be able to access all of the community for just one pound. If you go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members, and enter the word trial at the checkout, you'll be able to give that membership a try for 24 hours. If you like it, keep it. If you don't, let me know. That's it. Thanks very much. Enjoy this episode of the podcast, and I'll speak to you soon. James, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm good, man. Welcome back. Thank you for uh, doing a second episode. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, um... We kind of emailed back and forth earlier today and I put a bunch of questions to you with regard to, to military and tactical preparation, but then you, you threw me a curveball and you want to talk about the death of strength and conditioning. Indeed. Indeed. It, it, it is my view that upon sufficient analysis that this is the undeniable eventuality intrinsic to the evolution of sport. Now, I state this because if we consider what it means to sufficiently analyze a subject matter domain, and in my view, this is in no small way heavily influenced by my long-standing affinity for physics, in which case, regardless of the field in question, there is no more fundamental examination of the physical world. And so by assimilating such a way of thinking into the evolution of sport, what we then see is that what currently characterizes the role of the strength coach is in fact an agenda. And again, I'm, I'm speaking to the sort of corporate average 
agendas that most would agree constitutes the work of the strength coach, improving outputs in quantifiable and largely conventional patterns of movement, sprint, jump height, jump distance, weights lifted, etc. Thinking of it in those terms, what we must understand is that the achievement of relevant marks in the majority of these conventionally targeted outputs is attainable, highly attainable in an amount of time that in ideal circumstances would conclude prior to the athlete even achieving either professional or international status as an athlete. For example, what any of us know who have been training ourselves long enough as enthusiasts of physical training, we know that once physical maturation has been reached, so for a male somewhere in the mid to late teenage years, once that individual is exposed to a systematic and intelligible process of advancing these simple outputs, the essential peak of performance limits will have been attained in four to six years. I always think professional rugby players do not get stronger after 23. Right. But they get a lot better. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And so provided we're excluding the use of pharmaceutical interventions and let's say a drastic increase in body mass if the sole objective was simply to lift more heavier barbells, excluding that in the context of any variety of sport at the high performance level, we understand that it is ultimately futile to chase further improvements in what constitutes, by and large, the means by which many strength coaches justify their existence. And further, if, if those agendas are to be pursued in a way to continually attempt to justify the existence by way of saying, look, they're lifting this much more, they're They've jumped this much higher. As we know, at the end of this multi-year sequence of intelligible training, those integers will represent smaller and smaller values. Much otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, everybody who endeavored to be faster or jump higher or lift more would be running it, it near the speed of light before too many years and, 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 and lifting the globe on top of their shoulders. You know, it, it's, there's, there's finite highly finite limits. And furthermore, and perhaps this is the, the bedrock of my argument, that which currently constitutes this general assembly of what the strength coach is validating their existence upon, once this point has been reached, which requires just simply sort of steady preparation, any further improvements, with very few exceptions, will be unseen and unknowable on the pitch, on the ice, on the court, on the track. And this brings us to what, in my view, is the future. Because there also is a finite means of achieving further improvements by way of the strict repetitive practice of 
competition maneuvers. And the reason for that is much the same as what limits any grand improvements in a multi-year sequence of intelligible training of general physical preparatory movements. The, the necessary means of improving the competition activity have to do with the reassembly on how it is practiced and equally as important, the intermediary zone of activities that are neither general nor ultimately specific. And it is, it is, it is for this reason why, in my view, the, that the strength coach will become simply a part of the past and not the future because what will have to become recognized by the sports entity as a whole is the, is the objective truth of what I'm saying. And we've already discussed, and those of us who have been doing this long enough know that there's no getting away from the, the cultural, the cohesive glue that unifies the talent that's necessary to achieve high, high results. That will never change. However, what remains to be seen is a level of attention devoted towards these things that I am talking about in terms of the, 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 the reformatting of what it looks like to, to practice competition maneuvers in the addition of qualitatively, quantitatively valued approaches to specialized means of training that will in fact lead to further and further improvements that are achievable far beyond what ceases to happen with chasing, you know, greater, greater weights lifted, et cetera, in, in the conventional sense. Sure. So you, you mentioned the kind of stuff like, it's really, really difficult to, once you get to the end of that phase where they're, they're as big as they're going to get, they're as strong as they're going to get, they're as fast as they're going to get, then the stuff that improves them becomes harder and harder to measure. So by what criteria do you use to separate good practitioners from bad practitioners and actually justify your existence beyond those initial years? Indeed. Point of fact from my view, that which remains unseen yet must instantiate itself in this process of preparation as to modes of specialized training and the reformatting of practice, in fact, is predicated upon the most quantifiable means of evaluation because we already know, you mentioned, you mentioned this in the last podcast, I like I like the vernacular that used the stopwatch sports, right? We, we know that whether it's the timing device or the measuring device in terms of distance, it's long since been accepted. What is necessary to load and then peak and then set a personal record 
in these sporting disciplines that are pure output, fast, far, height, weight. This is completely uncontroversial to, to state we're taking this 17-year-old and in six years' time, we predict that there'll be somewhere around this mark and this mark based upon what we've seen so far after three years. And this is not a controversial thing to say. We look at, all right, what's been achieved? What have you been doing? It's no different than the distance coaching that you and I have done in the past when we're looking at a, an athlete. Okay, what have you been doing? What have you achieved? Okay, I think it's reasonable to achieve X, Y, and Z in eight more weeks and what have you. And there's no controversy to that. However, where there is controversy to is if we are in the preseason of any professional discipline or Olympic discipline prior to, you know, we've got, we've got Rio coming up this year. What, what is controversial, particularly if we're talking about a combat sport or a team sport, is, is to state the narrative of what's going to happen. Let's say it's a whatever. In, in the National Football League, it's a 16-game regular season. It would be very controversial, regardless of what happens behind closed doors and away from the media, for any coach to state, we're going to win all six games and then win the Super Bowl. And for a mixed martial artist, with the exception of Conor McGregor, yeah. who seems to try to say that, the willingness to state to the media I'll win every fight that I'm handed and I'll ultimately retire undefeated. And to the wrestler and to the ice hockey and to the, and the rugby and so on and so forth. Now, my, my argument, which speaks towards, you know, the, the remark you made and what, what's perceived as being difficult to, to quantify is that on the basis of assimilating what is already uncontroversial and highly quantifiable and knowable from these disciplines that have long since vetted them, their, their modes of preparation into these other disciplines in which there is a much more parochial sort of understanding of how to globally unify the modes of preparation and achieve the same or approximate similar level of predictability is, is very much going to be predicated upon pulling from what we already know. So what this means is, it's actually quite simple, and it speaks towards the quote from Albert St. Yorgi that I have on my Global Sport Concepts website, which is, discovery consists of seeing what everyone else has seen and thinking what no one else has thought. So if we consider any competitive endeavor, team sport, combat, what have you. What we know is that when we, when we isolate the, the tactical and technical specifics, which ultimately distinguish each sport from the next, because we know, we know that there is, there is some fundamental level of just physical preparatory attributes that almost any athlete does well to include in their in their acumen. GPP, right? A, a 
just a semblance of fitness that's not particularly directed towards any identifiable and specific sporting traits. And so we recognize this, and now it's a question of what really distinguishes one sport from the next. And so then we are getting into the technical, tactical arena. Now, when we get ourselves into that arena, we know that even within the same sport, and this is something I've spoken about for years, we, and we look closely at tactics and, and philosophical commitments to certain tactics, that that further exemplifies what must be given priority in preparation. And, and what we'll find is, while what, what generally constitutes and distinguishes the team and combat sports from the cyclical ones is their acyclic character. So granted, there's a lot of cyclical action by way of running in team sports, uh, for example, or, or you know swimming in water polo, which also has a lot of acyclic activity there's still a predominance of acyclic maneuvers and it's those that really distinguish one sport from the next. They kind of punctuate the sport, right? Indeed. And so from this, we, what we know again on the basis of sufficient analysis is that it is in fact both the, the perfection or optimization of the movements specific to that, which to use what you said, what, punctuates one sport from the next generate a scheme of loading for that task specific work capacity working backwards from the nature of the competition calendar and very very similarly to let's say for a track and field sprinter we know that the task specific work capacity is building up both the optimization and the tolerance for the nature of the movement and intensity that is characterized by the event itself. So a hundred meter specialist, what we understand is the more exposure that athlete has to maximum velocity and speed endurance work, the greater their task specific work capacity. So now it's a question of working up by way of, you know, short to long, long to short or an aggregate approach to those intensities and establishing a sufficient level of specific work capacity that one is then able to taper from. We cannot taper unless a robust enough volume precedes it that we may reduce from and then ultimately sustain over a competition calendar. So the way this reshapes what is recognized as sport practice is having greater knowledge of the nature of these task-specific movements that together constitute the tactical nature of what distinguishes this one sport from the next work backwards in such a way that's, again, this is where the assimilation from all of these, whether it's a stopwatch sports or measured with a tape measure, et cetera, what's already been laid out on a golden platter in terms of, look, there's really not much controversy in what it takes to improve sprint speed, to improve middle and long distance speed in, in running, in swimming, in Nordic skiing, in canoe, in kayak, 
and cycling, etc. Now it is taking what we know that's already been established and applying to what is actually much more similar than it is different with respect to the, what it constitutes and, and characterizes team and combat sports. Because while, for instance, in combat sports, there's the opportunity to end the competition quickly by way of if it's MMA, a knockout or a submission, if it's wrestling, a pin, etc. By and large, however, we know that the preparation must allow the athlete or athletes the ability to perform at a high level for the longest amount of potential time. So in rugby, we know that there could be extra minutes on the clock based upon stoppages by the official, et cetera, and overtimes and many other types of team sports and combat sports. And so from this, when we really ask ourselves, well, what is the nature of what is occurring, is plausible to occur? And when we answer that question, we have, okay, movements. Okay, what kind of movements? Intensities, biomechanics, frequencies of occurrence, etc. So by scaling backwards from a particular volume of these movements, and again, this in some ways there will be similarities shade, shared from program to program and other differences based upon the philosophical commitments, we, what we'll find is a very similar strategical concept that is shared already by the, the sprinters, the jumpers, the throwers, the skaters, the skiers, the rowers, etc. So I think I remember I, last week I read through your applied sprint manual again and, and read it. And I remember writing on one page in big letters was just do more. So <laughs> whatever it is you're relying on to achieve or to succeed in your sport, you have to be able to do it more. You have to be able to do it with higher outputs. You have to be able to do it with more capacity and you have to be able to do it with higher frequency. And I think in that way, I've kind of answered my own question because getting a little bit off topic, you, you make a case in the book about how a, a sprint and extensive tempo approach is far better an answer to the problem of trying to prepare rugby players than for example maximal aerobic speed because the the question is who can achieve the highest velocities as often as possible for as long as possible within rugby and mass does not answer any of those questions so indeed that's that's kind of you know <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm asking a question and answering it at the same time but basically are you saying what it is you need to do within sport preparation without thinking just in terms of physical preparation is break down your sport the movements that punctuate your sport and do them for the highest output capacity and, and, and frequency possible and work backwards from there absolutely it's a question of which let's say it's rugby which team has the potential to instantiate all these different types of movements, technical approaches to movements, to tactical cohesion that links them together, which team is in a position to actualize these at the highest intensities, at whatever frequency is required, and for however many times over the course of the duration 
might be required, as you said. And so as to what that number is, well, we already know what the number is, the, the numbers roundabout are, and that this is something that does not even necessitate the diagnostic sophistication required to do really accurate time motion. You can simply, as Charlie Francis stated so long ago, look at the players and not the game. And it's you know something that I have always argued is that if, if you take someone who is just an intelligent thinker that has no particular understanding of sport and you task them with observing a competition on, on the basis of they'll be evaluated at some capacity after the competition on the basis of what they saw, what you're likely to get is a, an analysis that exceeds the utility of what constitutes so much sport publications because you, it, there is not a myopic scope of, there's not a set of blinders on this individual that has been possibly misdirected by the myopic nature of coaching education, which is just so much received wisdom and dogma. And the same ideas circulating around and around. I'll, I'll exactly. give you an example of, of what you talked about. Within GPS, um, the idea has come up of repeated high-intensity efforts. And a, a repeated high-intensity effort is, you know, some off the top of my head, some metric of, of GPS repeated within a certain space of time. But it doesn't tell you what they're doing, you know, what, what the speed is, what the biomechanics are and stuff like that. And I guess what you're saying is that analyzing a game in, in the context of those questions probably gives you better answers than just saying they do this many repeated high-intensity efforts throughout the game. Absolutely. And to the question of more, how, how much more and what are we doing, this is where the specialized work comes into place that will, in my view, ultimately surplant and replace what is currently recognized as being the markers for physical preparatory improvement. They will be more specialized. So what this involves is load gauges, different types of force platforms, impact devices, because when, when, we, when we get to the point that, that anyone must recognize is that, okay, look, he's Fit, fit, he's fit enough. He's strong enough. Yet, yet I'm, yet I'm, well, I'm not. Yet we all agree that he can improve on the pitch. What, well, what that's going to mean then is that what has yet to reveal itself to you is both a mode of preparation as well as assessment. That is is not a mystery nor a construct of and what what in my view and this could be this might be controversial perhaps not even a construct of of human invention maybe it's just lying in wait to be realized and it has nothing to do with the the clever thinkings of 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 some individual because and and I state this on the basis of what seems in this line of thinking that is independent of the myopic discourse that 
constitutes so much of sport preparation that it's just obvious that you know this intelligent person who's watching says, well, you say they're watching a, a game of rugby union and, and you say, okay, now the biggest players on the field, what did you notice them doing? Well, you know, I noticed they, all, they were all in this sort of pack and it was, you know, it, it was just, the, it was just the big men and the other guys, they were, they were sort of flanked out to the side and, and there was, they were really grinding at each other. And then there was other times where the, you know, a player was, I think it's, you call it a tackle. And then there was a small group that formed around them and there was, there, there was more grinding and then on other times, there was this group, it sort of looked like a swirling beehive. I think you called it a mall. And there was pe- being peeled off and jumping back in. And, and this, just this, this, this non-specialist observation then comes away saying, well, you know, I was taking notes and they did this particular thing this many times, this particular that many times. And then when that person is then asked the question, well, how do you think, how would you prepare these players? And they would say, well, I mean, you know, I'm no expert, but it, but it seems to me that you're going to have to do things that, that serve to improve your ability to do, you know, what you called a, a scrum and a mall and the, and the breakdown and the ruck, et cetera. Now, there's no argument to this. Of course, it's, well, you're exactly right. That, that is what should be done. But then when we look what is done, what we see is either general or specialized preparatory, typically at, at best, f- movements being a, a, trained in the weight room. And then we see specific, whether it's scrummaging itself, we see these scrum devices, which now, okay, now we're getting into a specialized means that's easily quantifiable. And ultimately, a disparity that exists between the two, because the, the work that is done, let's say, in the weight room is typically by and large singular output and not striving to achieve a specific capacity for work in a specialized sense. Yet the work that's the most specific is void of a calculus in terms of how it's loaded to achieve a specific work capacity. And this is substantiated on the basis of, you know, cornering any scrum coach and saying, let me see your plan for the next six weeks. And I want you to rationalize to me the volumes, good luck, (laughs) the rest intervals, right? So, so there's this huge gray area of specialized work that will is, will be highly quantifiable on the basis of the, the nature in which it is executed. Because now what we'll be able to show is, let's say it's a particular force measuring device using impact sensors and so on. And what it, what it then allows the athlete to do is to perform a, a specialized maneuver that satisfies the biomechanical architecture to a degree that is sufficient enough to draw the correlation for transference. And now we have a very straightforward means of measuring. So, so what we would know from this then is if we look at the, the postures involved, let's say in the scrum, and now we have values, and, and this has probably been done somewhere to some rudimentary level to get an idea of the forces that are involved by position 
on average. And, and so now the question is being able to put them in a position where they can exert in such a way, satisfy the tenets of dynamic correspondence, and now via an introduced load scheme, actually develop a set of develop a level of task-specific work, work capacity because enough of these movements together that are ultimately harmonized because we would, we would never get away from the competition activity. Much the same as the, the sprinter never gets away from running of, of some sort. You know, even, even, even in the case of injury, you're doing what you can, single leg power speed and whatnot. So the, the competition activity itself is preserved due to its ongoing presence in the scheme, but not randomized presence, calculated presence. Because the, the shocker to, to many coaches is the notion, when I explain it to them, that the more you introduce competition training by way of if it's a team or field court sport scrimmage, what you're doing consciously or not, it's sort of like gravity exists whether you believe in it or understand it or not. Like evolution. <laughs> Indeed. What, what you are doing is you are elevating arousal levels to the peak compared to anything else because the athletes are in the domain of sport competition. And so what that means is there will be no optimization of technical or tactical maneuvers. There will simply be evaluation of what has already been instantiated. Exhibition. And, yeah, and what you and I both know is that because there are so many flawed modes of preparing actual technical and tactical development that there is often a host of biomechanical errors that link themselves to the execution of these things and they simply become crystallized the the more so the more you scrimmage the more you're reinforcing anything that is of negative consequence into their motion and the less achievable it is to improve. Yeah. So it's the idea that, you know, you'd rather, well, you know, for example, 500 reps to correct or 500 reps to ingrain a good motor pattern and 3000 to correct a bad one. Or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, we know, we know that any, we know that any knowledgeable professional would, if they're not able to take into their tutelage, a, a master of sport in, in the context of objective truth, then what they'd probably prefer is someone who has all the sort of general fundamental prerequisites, yet no direct experience. Blank, blank slate. In, indeed. So if I'm following you, right, let's, let's imagine a concrete example. For You mentioned the scrum. Would it be fair to say that a kind of... Uh, logical or if we if we work backwards the the logical progression would be for example um you you mentioned some kind of device to, to measure power output or effectiveness in the scrum it would be your ability to sustain power outputs within that exercise at uh frequencies um seen in the game and then 
prior to that, you would be concentrating on the development of uh, maximal output, regardless of, of capacity, and then working backwards from that, more general exercises, more, more extensive means to prepare the body, and then working back even further, just a general um, program which concentrates on being able to get into the correct positions, to build the physical qualities that underpin that, and that should be the flow working backwards or, or forwards in the program to achieving that, that outcome. And then you would, re- you would repeat that for all of the key movements and also the general movements like sprinting, tackling, rocking, mauling, and so on. And then the frequency would be based on how often are they doing those things in the context of their position. Absolutely. And, and from then, it simply becomes a question of proportionality. What proportion of time will be spent on any one of those areas of concentration that you mentioned, mentioned relative to the population that one is working with. So, so idealistically, the, the, the proportionality scheme of the international squad of the, of the Southern Hemisphere will look much different than the proportionality scheme of the juniors, the 15 to 16-year-old age bracket, regardless of it, regardless of if they're practicing the same tactical scheme. We, we know that the proportionality, the time spent of these different components will be different such that I, idealistically no different than the elite level sprinter who's been already com- competing for, let's say, four years. The proportion of time spent in special physical preparation will far exceed that spent in general physical preparation. Yet at, yet at no point are you operating to the utter exclusion of any one of these entities. It, the question is how much at any given time. And the transfer that they're in because you know, an 18-year-old is going to get a, a, a much bigger improvement in their scrummaging ability from a basic barbell program that increases their back squat versus a five-year pro needs to be scrummaging to get better at scrummaging. And then everything else merely serves as a foundation to, to build a bigger peak on. Essentially, yes. However, it, it's not entirely polarized to, to the, and I know that you know this, but for the viewers, it's not as if we're talking about, okay, for, for, the, for the prop, let's say, it's not as if we're talking about, well, basically it comes down to squatting on one side and scrummaging on the other. There's a big gray area in between that's only gray due to the lack of sufficient knowledge that currently exists in the mode of coaching. Uh, as to what constitutes modes of relevant specialized modes of preparation and that and that's what really fills in the blank because there's only so much you can get out of the actual competition exercise itself you know what we know for instance from Bundeshuk there's ways to actually exceed the intensity of the competition exercise we can exceed the in, particularly in the case of a, of a force maneuver, we can, we can exceed the velocity. We can also exceed the force because when we put them in a stable platform where they're not going up against an opponent, you, you know, that's why you can squat more on flat ground than you can on a physio ball. Physio ball. Note to all the, the, the functional trainers out there. who. <laughs> so there's this large landscape of movements that are 
lying in wait to be integrated into a preparatory scheme that is neither a physical preparatory scheme nor a sports practice scheme, but simply a sports preparatory scheme by way of what I term as global training load management will satisfy every conceivable question that a knowledgeable individual is in a position to ask as it relates to sport preparation. You've, you've touched on the idea of, of global load management. Do you want to kind of uh, expand on that idea for people that have not heard it before and, and kind of talk about that idea of the, the general contractor? Yeah, indeed. So what has existed in sport yet is – and not limited to sport. What, what has existed in the professions in which the medium by which the professional exercises their tradecraft, when that medium is the human being, an extraordinary amount of leeway is presented to the practitioner due to our adaptability. An adaptability that is not shared by inanimate objects that represents the medium by which the tradecraft of so many other professionals outside of medical doctors and sport coaches and physical therapists, et cetera, utilize in their tradecraft. And so the, the reason why, and, and, and let's face it, we're, we're talking about the most perceived qualified level here. We have to, because that's where the playing field levels out at. You know, we're not, we're not talking about age group five to eight-year-old rugby, and for the same reason, when I'm using analogies and talking about executive chefs and general contractors, similarly, I'm not talking about people who are novices in the field. So at the highest levels, those architects and general contractors who are being enlisted to build the next super hotel in Dubai versus the Michelin-rated executive chef versus the multitude of other professionals whose tradecraft is one in which is so much less forgiving to incompetence. So t take the, the executive chef. The, 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 the proteins... The starches, whatever, if, if they are not cooked properly, there, there's no relying upon the, the Kobe beef to sort itself out in six weeks' time, d despite its mistreatment. There, 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 there's no solution to the broccoli sorting itself out, resultant of the misdiagnosis of, of salt versus pepper. It's simply work must be restarted. Unlike in sport, where e even in the medical community, a misdiagnosis of grand importance, it is still possible, it's still recoverable in many cases due to the uniqueness of our survivability and adaptability. Same as mismanagement in the current recognized technical tactical loading that leads to X amount of non-contact injuries, etc. Rarely are we looking at a career-ending scenario. Yeah, 
And you can, you can fuck up the prep for a game physically, but you know that psychologically they can pull it out the bag, but you can rely on talent to get the, the, the win. Absolutely. So when that culture and talent pool has been established, you can actually have, by measure of objective truth, a disastrous scheme of misdirected preparation that could potentially be associated with world championship level performance. I've seen it. <laughs> Whereas the, the alternative, I mean, you cannot even have a disastrous scheme for fast food because that will be recognizable in the taste. So it, when I use the, the general contractor architect term, the, the concept of global training load management in the way that I would describe it, it is a bit of an aggregate between those two professionals. This concept in that there must be a degree of autonomy to the architectural programming of load such that that architectural blueprint encapsulates every mode of preparation. To that, we know that it's, it's more than an architectural scheme there's now the, the factor of, of instantiating what these modes of preparation will come to exist as in practical terms. So this is where the, the, the general contractor then comes to, into play. And so we, we could look at this individual as being one and the same of having the architectural knowledge and attributes and the ability to then coordinate the specialists. So what happens now is the word head coach, either one of two things happens, either in the future, this becomes the qualifications necessary to become a head coach, or the word head coach is no longer utilized. And we come up with some other director of coaching, what have you, that fulfills this position. And the same as what's recognized in so many other professions that individual in charge is by comparison far more qualified to be in charge than what currently constitutes most head coaches on the basis of those other individuals' ability to educate others on every facet of preparation as it exists in their domain, in ways that most head sports coaches couldn't even begin to have even a parochial conversation about. So, you know, you did a, a lecture on this inside the community, and it, I think it's one of the highest viewed within the community, um, most likely as well, because you, you tell strength coaches this, you tell head coaches this, and it raises an eyebrow. And I've, I've been to, to several professional clubs since you've done that, and and uh, and talked about that presentation and you say yeah you know the, the head coach should not be the head coach and he, he needs to answer to somebody and it always gets that that wince or that that raise of the eyebrow from people within the existing hierarchy how and the, the answer is always that is not going to work that is not going to work in the real world how do you make that work in the real world within the context of what goes on now is it a case of you have to do your absolute best to educate and help the head coach and make them look smart or 
is, is there is there another way to approach that that problem? Presumably, this is how it will begin. And as you and I, as, and as you and I were speaking about offline, I'm in a position to do that now on a consulting basis with a few professional organizations. It it ultimately begins care on, on the basis of what's happening right now. A conversation in which the endeavor is to remain close to what is objectively truthful and to discard what is, by and large, the, the current sort of populace of thinking that is the result of em- empiricism. Now, I've, I've mentioned so many times over the years the influence of physics that it has had on my thinking, and, I, and I've remain a student of this way of thinking. And, and one of my favorite thinkers is David Deutsch, who's a professor of physics at Oxford and is specialized in particularly quantum computation and constructor theory in these fascinating realms of discourse. And something that he has talked quite a bit about is this idea of the falsity of empiricism which is this notion that knowledge is received through the senses. So what this does is it dismisses the concept of experiential authority. Dismisses. And and we know that it must be, Deutsch has gone on to explain how this really did damage to the scientific community over the past, you know, the early part of the last century. This, This concept that experience is synonymous with authority. This is not true. What, what he explains is how all knowledge does not come through the senses. It does not come through experience. All of it begins through conjecture, which is incomplete knowledge. Then it must hold up in the face of criticism. And eventually, evidence is created, by the way, in the scientific realm a prediction that is testable. So the reaction that you received when you speak to these other coaches and you convey, you know, something that I say and th- that 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 knee-jerk reaction is, oh no, that's never going to happen, or or that's not practical, or good luck, or wh- whatever they. That is a product of the culture of sport that is largely built upon empiricist thinking. Mm-hmm which is a product of, I've been doing this for 20 years. We're gonna, yeah. And this is what we did when we were competing for the World Cup in such and such and such and such years. And, and, and so therefore, so much of what is recirculated and regurgitated is the received, and I use the quote loosely, knowledge that, that is actually not rooted in what is true and useful, but rather experiences that occurred and simply by process of association are perceived to have value but but not because they are objectively true and useful never never confuse uh, longevity with wisdom <laughs> absolutely absolutely so describe to me the process that you're undertaking to try and influence that mode of thinking with you know, you you mentioned the organizations to me off off air. They're big, big, big organizations, and I imagine in an organization of that size with that level of resources, there's going to be a lot of inertia 
How do you overcome that? Well stated. So while, while those of us with, with this sort of specific knowledge must agree that the current landscape is operating in what, what is and, and certainly will be viewed at in the future, the stone age of sport. At the same time, I choose to believe no, no different than most of the, of the world that b- believed in geocentricity. No, no different than most of the world that believed that the globe was flat and you could sail off the end of it. No different than the, 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 the inhabitants of the United States in the age of slavery. So these, these embarrassing marks on the geological, on, on the timescale of human, relatively recent human history, these humiliating marks occurred concurrently with some of the greatest achievements in human history. You know, at the same time as the age of discovery, beginning in the 15th century, we had the, you know, the enlightenment was occurring while at the same time people were being burned at the stake for thought crimes. Currently, you and I are having this discussion. There's people out there doing incredible things for the planet and for the human condition. And at the same time, there's people cutting people's heads off because they don't believe in the same religion as we speak. So I choose to believe that despite the fact that sport on the grand scale is operating off of an archaic set of preparatory schemes that even its current inhabitants are not beyond evolution. And on the, on the basis of being able to have the conversation with the right individual, that's all that is required. Because we're talking about a shift in the cultural landscape, the culture of thinking. That, you know, I'll, I'll quote David Deutsch again and what he's spoken about. Whether you believe it's 50, 100, 250,000 years, the, the history of, of humans and our predecessors, a conservative, a conservative estimate would be 100,000 years. What we know is that morphologically, the brains of our ancestors were very, very similar, much more similar than different. Thus, the reasons why there wasn't the Mars space rover and NASA and aircraft carriers and supersonic airplanes. The big gulp and stuff like that. <laughs> all, these, all these achievements, these technological, I'm speaking of technological ones, all these technological achievements, the reason they did not exist in the age of the Neanderthal was not because their brains were incapable because in fact the memory capacity and the speed of processing was very likely the same they've just not done the thinking to get to that point it's exactly right the culture wasn't there to support the advancement in knowledge so cultural shift is simply 
an, an emergence of one and then two and then three and then four, enough people agreeing. So every conversation that, for instance, I have with you, know, you and I right here, we're having a conversation. It, it will be listened to by who knows how many other people. A couple of thousand. <laughs> and, and, and the degree to which it resonates then has the potential to constitute a cultural shift. And so in the microcosm, what I'm in a position to do finally, you know, because what we're talking about here, Care, it's 2016, 2003, I was having similar conversations. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a matter of being able to be, to, to have the conversation with those in a position of influence that can thereby initiate the process of change on the scale that it deserves. I suppose it's quite, it, it, it may be considered frustrating as a, if you, if you term yourself a strength coach to realize that the stuff that you're talking about can have a, a huge, huge influence on physical preparation and performance but we've not even talked about sets, reps, exercises, anything like that. We've talked about culture and, and, and psychology and organizational, the, the structure of a, a sports organization. But I think, you know, I think we said before that there's, there's no physical preparation, tactical preparation, technical preparation. There's just sports preparation. You get better or you get worse. And I suppose when you think about things on that scale, you open yourself up to being able to have far more of an influence on the outcome of games than just being a strength coach, because you alluded to it earlier, you can have fantastic athletes and still suck at your sport. Well, you know, Kara, I'm convinced that because I've seen it, I've seen it in the timeline of my involvement with sport. I'm convinced that in order to, rem now this will be controversial, but it's also objectively true. In order to remain a a strength coach. You must be limited in your thinking ability. Because the eventuality of the increasing quest for knowledge on how to generate, how to contribute to more impactful sport results invariably leads to the encroachment into the technical tactical arena. You know, just to, to interrupt you, I had a meeting once at a club where I was looked at like I was off my fucking head because they said uh, something about squats in relation to, to wingers and, and sprinting speed. And they said uh, something about squats and I said, I don't care how much he squats. And they said, what do you mean? I said, if he, if he runs the 40 three tenths faster, I don't care what he squats. Indeed. And that means and so, you're a bad strength coach. And, and in that parochial conception of what the role of that individual plays, I can understand such a response because, because in, in this primitive way of thinking with these balkanized divisions of who does what inside the building, the, the current understanding is, you know what, you're the strength coach. I want you to get them stronger, more fit, whatever. And the, the funny thing is, is that, again, and this is irrefutable, 
anyone who's been around truly world-class level performers understands that that which is actually under the domain in most cases of the strength coach becomes such a low factor on the totem pole of hierarchical importance that this is the only reason why there could be so many people unfit for the job because no different than sort of a no different than a side dish at I won't even say a, a high-end restaurant, but something mediocre. You you sort of need it to have a complete meal, but as to whether it makes or breaks the whole experience, eh, I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the entree. Now that doesn't hold up in the, the highest end. However, that, that, that's sort of what it becomes because due to the lack of competency and specific knowledge of all relevant actors that go into sports preparation, the, 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 the reason, part of the reason anyway, why most head sports coaches will on the one hand say, oh, my, my, my strength coach is one of the most important, you know, they're with the athletes most of the time and they, they, the discipline and all these things. They, they might say that, but then in the same token, if they're being honest as to, well, what is, in, what is it important in your mind that this individual does? What should they be doing? What, what should the contents of their, then it'll be, oh, you know, it's, you know, they, they got to they gotta work those guys hard. You get them strong. You know, th- that's sort of the language is you got to have this person, but as to what they are qualified to do and what they do, it's no different than the mailroom at a large company. Okay, we got to have a mailroom to process the mail as to, the, as to what that CEO knows about the qualifications of the mailroom supervisor. I think we both know the answer to that question. And on the same token, we also know the limited likelihood of the CEO to, to entertain the thoughts of the mailroom supervisor who claims to have a revolutionary idea on how to evolve the business. Yeah, I always think, you know, you can you can tell when the head coach or the star player of a successful team has left, but you could you could not tell if a strength coach has left a successful team. That's the impact that, you know, people say, "Oh, what happened?" The answer is if if a team suddenly starts sucking, it's because the head coach has left or one of their their good technical coaches has left or their star players left. And absolutely, absolutely. So it's as I said, the eventuality of it, the, the reason I call, you know, the, the, the end of the strength coach is because the thinking person who, who has the, the knowledge and the thirst for it to contribute to the sports operation to the highest extent will, will invariably be leaving behind what at some point they held very closely to as mechanisms of importance and begin encroaching upon the whole, the, excuse me, the holes that they see in what's currently recognized as the technical tactical arena. It's invariably, because you start, whether it's those who hear a conversation such as this or any other, and they begin to see, wait a minute, I'm, I'm seeing this, you know, season after season, I'm having them spend time on this, you know, barbell and doing that, but, but I'm not seeing the correlation. We, 
There, there must be a more relevant means of spending time. There must be more relevant modes of generating force than what we're doing here that will have a greater impact on the, their ability to perform to a high level on the competition arena. And so now all of a sudden you've encroached upon the domain of technical tactical preparation because they're supposed to be the ones who resolve the problem of advancing sport skill. You know, and if you're the strength coach, you, you just work on these, these fitness qualities, you, you, you leave the job to us to make them better rugby players. But of course, we know that requires a level of knowledge that is not often possessed by those who are tasked with that. So, so regardless of the, the nature of this conversation that I've had with technical, tactical coaches, as well as those in the physical preparatory realm, it, it, it becomes, the, the course of action becomes the same for both. Because, because if you're the backs coach or the scrum coach or the head coach, what I'm then, the way, there's very few language shifts that occur in this conversation other than me telling you how it, it's going to be the end of your strength coach care be, be, because you as the forwards coach needs to understand the specifics of the biomechanics and the energy production, et cetera, that are associated with skill development and ultimately performance in the games. And now you're working backwards into that gray area that now is being competed for by the strength coach. Cause, cause then once in one and the same, we're talking about loading strategies, progressions, specialized means of development. So now it's, that has historically not constituted the workload of the technical tactical coach, nor is it historically recognized as part of the acumen of the strength coach. So who, who's going to do it? And, and, and so this is why, it's my view that the eventuality is a unification and it simply becomes sport preparation. And as to what you call the actors involved and what their job titles are is irrelevant. The key is that the architecture is in place and autonomously supervised by the qualified individual who also goes on then to see that it is instantiated in such a way that is commensurate with the level of expertise that went into its construction. In the real world, who do you think best exemplifies what you're talking about? Which, which teams or individuals? So I am unaware of a single team sport or combat sport leader. And I, and I have a, a fairly good knowledge of what, as a, as a consultant, and having done consulting on different levels for many years, I have a very good handle on what's occurring all over the world. Save for, you know, I, I cannot speak definitively for what's going on in, for instance, the Far East. However, what we, what we do know is that in the individual sports, there have been much closer representatives of this because the, you know, you've heard me mention Charlie Francis, a, a track and field coach who is a truly knowledgeable one. We, we bring up Dan Paff, who we both know, and you'll, you'll be spending some time with him. This, this is the closest example in the sporting context. Because, for example, when you go to visit with Dan, 
if, if you are to ask him, if you're to try to stump him on any of these different modes of preparation that contribute to the final outcome, you're not going to be able to. Now, granted, are, are there less moving pieces to the, to the for instance, the, the, the number of competitors? Yes, because we're talking about single athletes doing one thing at once. However, the landscape of diversity that exists between the dynamics of pole vaulting and discus and javelin and sprinting and marathon is vast. So, so while we're not talking about a team per se of athletes doing things simultaneously involving tactics, et cetera, the, the landscape of track and field and, and those coaches, Dan is one who's, who has an exceptional understanding of this diverse field of movement landscape as well as all contributing mechanisms is the closest, ex, ex, it, it, no, it is the example. It's that the team sport doesn't have these people who, who go from the therapy with hands-on to the weight room, to the specialized work, whether that takes place in a gymnastics arena or the track or the weight room, to the competition activity itself, the understandings of psychological discourse and manipulation from one athlete to the next, all these different variables that I laid out in the last webinar, we see them encapsulated in one person and it's not across the landscape. However, we see pockets of this in different disciplines I mentioned track and field. Of course, we would find it in others in sprint cycling and canoe kayak, et cetera. What we do not see, and, and certainly not at the highest levels, is this level of accountability in any one single individual of authority in the team and combat spell, sport realm. There's, there are certainly the models to look at, not only in sport, by way of these single athlete endeavors, but also in so many pro professions around us again, in which I'm not sure if I mentioned to you. So the, I've, I've worked with Larry Fitzgerald for the last two years of the Arizona Cardinals when I, I, I live with him for six weeks in the off season. And actually this, this, this little piece I'm including in my book that I'm coming out with on global training load management. So Larry has heard me go on and on about these same topics because we, I, I, I live with him for six weeks, and it's, and he's an, an, an extraordinarily intelligent individual. So we have great conversation, and so we were traveling, as we've done both summers that I've been with him to a friend of his, and you can imagine an athlete of Larry's magnitude. He, he has circles of friends in all sorts of, you know, the the uber wealthy to the, the you know the you, you name it, and so. So, so this individual who's a friend of Larry's, is a, he's in his 60s. He's a small business owner who's in extraordinarily successful and wealthy as a result of the monopoly that he has on his particular corner of the industry. And so without getting, I'm not going to mention his name or specifics, but so this individual it has a high school education. That's it. He's self-educated and he has an extraordinary mind for engineering. And so what he has done is over the years, he built his own machine tools to machine these particular specialty parts that are used in bigger machines, et cetera. 
he's got a monopoly on this because he built the machines that build the devices. These complicated, using hydraulics and different types of uh, modes of mobilization. I mean, really fascinating stuff. I, I, was, I was in his plant to see these things. So needless to say, this man is a master of his tradecraft, and he, he's got about 300 employees. And Larry and I and this man are sitting down, and Larry's heard me go on and on. And he, so he says to his friend, he says, James has this idea that business owners and chefs and architects are all more competent in their own domain than sport coaches are because of the way they understand all that needs to be understood and what they do. So, so he says to his friend, he says, how much do you understand about your 300 employees? He says, Larry, I have 300 employees and I can do every one of their jobs. I said, Larry, I rest my case. Now, th you know, this, this does not speak towards the totality of business owners, just the same as I, if I use the analogy of a, of a chef or a contractor or a symphonic orchestral constructor. This is not to say that anybody doing any other job is a master of what they do, unlike a sport. That's not what I'm saying. But those at the highest levels, if we create this borderline and we say, okay, how are we characterizing the best in a given field? How are we validating our claim that these are the best surgeons? These are the best chefs. These are the best contractors. Now there's a way of doing so. And I'll, to quote David Deutsch again, who, who believes in this theory of that there is an objective truth even to the aesthetic realm, to art. There, there are ways of assigning objective truth to something that historically, Wayne, we may have looked at as beauty is in the eye of the beholder, where you have this, this thinking of that there's an objective truth that says, no, that's not true actually. There is such thing as more beautiful and less beautiful. And so if, if you subscribe to this way of thinking, then you understand that there are ways of objectively identifying mastery of tradecraft. And it is my contention that the way, particularly the way that I would choose to define mastery of tradecraft, we can go in and look at so many other fields and find levels of tradecraft mastery unseen, in the, particularly in the team and combat sport realm. Wow. <laughs> We're going to have to wrap it up there. I think people are going to uh, lose, lose their minds uh, definitely within this hour and 10 minutes. Thank you very much, James. Where can, um, where can people get a hold of you? Always a pleasure. So we've got athleteconsulting.net and globalsportconcepts.net. Those who are those who enjoy such a discussion as the one that you and I have had will enjoy Global Sport Concepts because all it is is streaming lectures of my own. So. And um, where's, when's the book going to be out? I do not have a set date. However, I'm, I'm much closer to completing it than I am starting it. There's, a, there's already almost 200 pages completed. And so uh, certainly this year as to where in the year – I cannot be certain yet because I, as, we, as we spoke about offline, I've got a few other things going on. And so it, it is, however, going to be the handbook for those interested in global training load management. So that I can say with confidence. Well, I'll, um, I'll be sure to put that out to the mailing list for, uh, for everyone that's, uh, that's on Rugby Strength Coach so they can, uh, they can see when that comes out. Much appreciated.
Thank you. Let me just stop.